grew up in suburbia, so we did not go out at night. Even when I lived in Perth, it was always suburbia. So you would like take a taxi to somewhere at night and then you'd come back in a taxi and you'd never like walk around or just like be out at night until I lived in Melbourne. 24-7, noise, horns, all night. The first night I moved here, I don't think I slept a single minute. I've never seen so much activity at nighttime near where you sleep, like a house, ever. I feel like that's a very city thing, is to actually experience nighttime in that way. Beyond the rural or urban divide, that it depends also on the size of the city or the type of city you're talking about. Like nights have very different feels and interpretations depending on which city you are living in. My experience growing up in one of the most dangerous cities in the world, in Caracas, Venezuela, was quite interesting and quite remarkable in the sense that as a young people, when you're growing up, the night is a space that you look forward to as a space to meet others, to interact with others, to, to build your part of your identity. For me, as, as well as for many other people whom I grew up with, we had a huge limitation. We faced the limitation of not being able to go out because of how dangerous things were outside and how our nightlife was restricted to malls or people's houses or friends' houses or private spaces. And that, to some extent, led to me questioning, what's the impact of this absence of nightlife in public spaces for people our age? And what's the impact of the lack of spaces for young people to socialize over social capital and over trust in society, especially in places that are highly polarized and highly dangerous such as my hometown. So I think it's interesting how while there are very important differences between night and day and between urban and suburban night styles, it's interesting how each city has its own nighttime history to tell. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the podcast miniseries Cities After Dark, brought to you by the Connected Cities Lab at the University of Melbourne. Across this series, we're going to explore cities after dark, their histories, theories, institutions, and perceptions, to understand a part of the day that most of us tend to forget. In this first episode, we'll be discussing the history of the night and delve into the nighttime economy, discussing how that concept doesn't really cut the mustard anymore, and how we can start to broaden our understanding of the night. I'm Shelby from the Connected Cities Lab, where I work as a researcher in urban policy, and I'm your host for this series, Cities After Dark. To put this series together, I interviewed over 16 researchers from around the world, gathering their insights to learn what they think are the key issues of the night. So each episode will contain these interviews, plus discussions between myself and my co-host Andrina Sejas, a recent PhD graduate of Harvard University and a founder of Night Tank, and Michele Okuto, the director of the Connected Cities Lab. Today, I'm joined by Andrina, who's joining us from Washington, D.C. Hello, everyone. Andrina, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the nighttime and how you came to be interested in the field? For me, I think it was um, exploring my own hometown, exploring the streets of Caracas back in 2008, along with a friend, a good friend and a sociologist, Gerardo Gonzalez, who started observing how in different intersections in different parts of town, particularly in public spaces, 
life at night changes dramatically or life changes hour by hour. We would sit down with notebooks and pencils and take notes of how many people, how many cars, how many buses, how many children we saw walking around the same intersection at a particular time. And we understood that the night is not cannot be seen as a homogenous or monolithic time frame, but it's a sequence of differentiated stages and experiences that happen in cities. And that's why we learned how rich this time frame is and the need to explore it with the dedication that we put in the same passion we put into exploring the day. I think for me, it's a little bit of a different journey. I mean, I grew up without nighttime really as a, a space that we inhabited ever that just built on the fear that suburbia kind of builds around nighttime. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to Melbourne and I lived in a really high density urban area where you kind of just walk everywhere, you're out at night, not just in a bar somewhere at a restaurant because that's kind of standard, but actually traveling to and from, inhabiting those spaces in between. I think a lot of us that don't live in dense areas don't actually experience that. And so it wasn't until I moved to Melbourne that I started to kind of like reclaim this emotion that I had about night that made me feel so much more secure. I think being in it, experiencing public transport and sidewalks and parks and things at night, which I'd never really done before, kind of gave me this whole new experience. I identify a lot with that story in the sense that for me, Growing up in a place where the night was non-existent, basically, or the night was a private space where you couldn't interact with others because of the fear of getting robbed or getting into trouble, it made me realize, made me value very much the possibility of exploring spaces at night, of, of using public spaces, even running at night uh, or or interacting with like playing sports at night or as, you know, as a, as a woman, the experience of being able to walk the streets at night safely is a very, it's something that's very important that you don't realize until you, you lost it. And I think one interesting question when we think about these perceptions is, is who owns the night or who, who claims these spaces? And, um, that's one of the questions that has inspired me to, to work in this field. And I, and I think it's important to not lose sight of the different people, the different groups, the different perceptions that exist and coexist in one space, in this case, in the night, and how each group has a very different and unique view of these spaces and deserves to have a voice and a say in the way that they're planned and the way that they're put together. We actually have a whole episode coming up talking about who has access to the night and who is excluded. What's clear is we all have our own really unique relationships with the night. But what about historically? How has that changed? And it's interesting, I think, to often dive into the history of the night. I spoke to Robert Shaw, an urban and social geographer from Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, about the history of the night. I mean, if you go right back, the night is a space in which the state effectively withdrew. There may have been curfews, there may have been a limited night watch who had responsibility for the city, but essentially... If you go, and I'm thinking here about kind of late medieval, early modern Europe, there wouldn't have been any meaningful governance. The night was understood to be a scary space, a space where if you were out and about in public, there was a chance that you were either causing trouble or would encounter trouble. That might be very different in rural areas where actually there was labouring to be done, work to be done. But certainly in urban areas, there basically wasn't any nighttime governance. Uh, it's interesting if you ever read Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, the night guardsmen, the night watch are the kind of the comic relief because they were 
understood at the time to be basically kind of very incompetent. They were the kind of the joke police force, if you will, of kind of urban life. And, and so uh, Shakespeare makes them the fools in, in that play. From that kind of absence of governance, the night remained essentially an unregulated space in most urban settings, really through into the kind of 20th century is either a space in which activity is heavily regulated or criminalised. So you have either very restrictive nighttime, say, for example, alcohol licensing, bar opening uh, restrictions, which, which very much limit what can happen at night, perhaps allowing activity within fairly constrained districts where lighting and public services are available, or it's heavily policed. So you have your kind of later equivalents of that night watchmen at police forces who would be understood as responsible for safety and security and you know a discourse really remained and probably still remains about going out at night as perhaps inherently encountering danger and less oversight so in in that formal sense i think it's still today understood as a space in which there's sort of almost less governance less presence of the state so robert's historical account is very interesting as it shows how the night began being highly regulated and highly restricted space. And it's interesting to see how over the past, I would say, couple of decades, the night has been has been moving slowly from a police-centered approach to the incorporation of a broader cast of actors. And that's why we like to use a term to refer to this as nighttime governance instead of nighttime government, as it involves a broad set of nocturnal actors that are both state and non-state institutions. So just as we've seen a transition from government to governance when it comes to managing the city at night, over the past several years, cities are recognizing increasingly the very important contributions that nighttime activities bring into the city. For instance, in terms of jobs and economic development, in terms of culture and in terms of sociability. Cities like New York and London are keeping track of the growth of these industries and the growth of the nighttime economy. There's reports that state that 1.6 million people in London or one third of the city work at night, while in New York City, 300,000 jobs are part of the growing nighttime economy. So you mentioned that the night economy has changed over the last decade. Is it a new thing or is it just something that we've recently given a label? Yeah, so the term nighttime economy was actually coined in the 1960s in discussions of British rural towns, but the concept was only recently picked up by central and local governments as a strategy to encourage tourism, to create new jobs, and to promote local economic development. And while the concept has been very useful to depict some of the social and economic gains of expanding nighttime activity, it actually obscures the very important distinction between those whose work services the creative and nightlife industries and those who work the night shift in other non-leisure nighttime activities. In recent years, the term nighttime economy has been used as a working definition for anything nocturnal. And while it's still useful, it could be problematic. So it's important to think about and to incorporate other facets and other aspects that have to do with non-leisure related industries. We recently ran a studio at the University of Melbourne called Studio N with Masters of Urban Planning students. And you can see them really struggling with this term as well in their assignments and really getting confused in using this term to kind of attach it to almost anything and everything at the night. And I think there's a lot of confusion around what the nighttime economy actually means. So maybe, Andrina, if you could clarify for us all so we can all be super clear finally on what is actually the nighttime economy. Yes, and I wish I could provide a very specific and worldwide definition of the nighttime economy, but that's at the heart of the problem in the sense that there's a lack of a common language. 
used internationally by cities to refer to this time frame. While in some contexts we refer to the nighttime economy as those activities that range from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. In other contexts, because of cultural differences, they refer to this as 5 to 5 or the other 9 to 5. So it's there's many differences when it comes to the time frames and also when it comes to the industries that are involved in these time frames. So most definitions include restaurants and bars, nightclubs, casinos, sports arenas, theaters, concert halls. But there's also other broader definitions that include call centers or sports events that have nothing to do with nightlife. And it's important then to consider how there's a need for this field to move forward, to have consensus around the definition so we can then make way for a comparative analysis that allow us to learn from each other in different contexts. Night is a collection of many experiences, of many views and different perspectives and cannot be understood just as a, as a nighttime economy. That's why I believe that the term nighttime economy is a huge simplification of a broader field that requires more attention, more careful consideration to really understand what are the different perspectives and the different nuances that exist when we think about different cultures in different contexts. So I think um, cities from the global south forces us to reckon with uh, the extent to which the binary between night and day is an enforced one, and how this binary is being constantly contested, challenged, and reinforced in spectacular ways. I asked Christelle Olokoy, a PhD candidate in African Studies and Anthropology at Harvard University, about this. I'm Christelle. I'm a first-year PhD student at Harvard University, and I'm working on imaginations of the night in Lagos, Nigeria, and Johannesburg, South Africa. And I'm interested in how colonial imaginations of the night translate in contemporary nightlife. I think in cities of the global north, such a binary appear to some extent more naturalized. I think one example of that is a debate around the nighttime economy and how it takes place in cities in the global north where it mainly emerged from, which was how to transform cities, declining industrial cities into 24-hour cities, and the premise was that the night was somehow dead or dead in temporality and that it needed either reawakening or that it was started to awaken in link with recent economic transformations towards service economy, tourism, and the consumption of city experiences as some kind of commodity. So in cities of the global south, they show more clearly the limits of naturalized ideas on the night as a time of sleep, in parentheses. And a city like Lagos, for instance, is constantly being animated by nocturnal flux of goods, services, and people, which are essential to the functioning of the city. And you wouldn't be as easily able to cut off a nocturnal economy from a journal economy the way you could uh, in a city like Paris, for instance. And same with work. You wouldn't be as easily able to say this is like a night work or day work because boundaries are not as easily fixed. So in the same line with what Christelle was just saying, and I totally agree that in cities in the global south, it's very difficult to establish a strict differentiation between night and day. And a great example comes from a recent study from Bogota, Colombia, which categorizes the city's nighttime activities into four stages or realms. Instead of looking at it as a homogenous or a monolithic time frame as a block, it divides it into differentiated stages. And for instance, in Bogota, they talk about 
the night as a complement of the day as the first part, which is from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., which involves retail and services such as supermarkets and pharmacies that cater to those who cannot access them during the workday. But then there comes from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., you have this specialized night. And the specialized night involves leisure activities such as restaurants and bars and cultural entertainment. And then that's followed by the deep night from midnight until 3 a.m., which refers to the continuation of leisure activities in specialized nightlife districts. And finally, you have the night as a preparation of the day, which is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., where you find support services and catering, logistics, as well as other manufacturing activities that begin at this time frame. That's actually a fascinating point about access to goods and services. I think a really interesting thing that I noticed in the Global North when I lived in Perth, Australia, is that there was no access to basic goods and services like a grocery store after 5 p.m. And that was only a governance change that happened while I lived there. So for the first year, while I worked full time, I couldn't access a grocery store unless I went at lunch. I think that's a really interesting way of how governance in cities of the North have approached nighttime traditionally. And there's a clear difference when you listen to how Bogata have dealt with it. The governance is completely different. But in like thinking about it that way, it's actually completely about how Perth viewed nighttime as space that is at home. You go home and you're at home. You're not at the grocery store. You're not buying anything. You're not going out. You're at home after 5 p.m. I would even say that that institutionalization of that view of the night connects to the or explains the huge limitation, the restrictions that exist to access to services at night. Imagine if you're someone who works at night and you have to access urban services, such as something so, so, so basic, such as transportation, and you can't even have that provided to you. So it's it's I think that that example calls into consideration the way that cities think about the night and how that perception affects service provision and the flow of goods in these places. A lot of the institutionalization of restrictions and things is also from like a protection of workers' rights, which has a really strong history in the global north of protecting workers from overwork, from doing too many hours, that a lot of that restriction also in trading hours comes from that. But that restriction also inhibits these workers from experiencing different spaces and different aspects of the day, the 24 hours. It not only protects them, but restricts them from these experiences that they don't know that they don't get to have. I think that's fascinating as well. Something that is meant to protect you from being exploited, restricting how you conceive of your entire day. Yes, that's definitely such a big issue, and it's going to be a great uh, opportunity to discuss this further in the episode dedicated to night workers. But also, I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. On one hand, it's what you're saying about worker protection and worker rights. But on the other, it's also a combination with this negative perception of the night. It's, it's incredible how it exists in so many parts of the world, regardless of cultural backgrounds, of, of differences in context. Many places have a very negative perception and the night is stigmatized in many places because of its association and link to alcohol in many cases. And that has a lot to do with the way that it's regulated. And uh, when we think about trading hours or hours of operation for activities at night, they all end up being connected directly to alcohol or the distribution of alcohol uses. So it's very interesting to see how as we 
think about a broader perspective of the night, we then also have to diversify and expand the way that we regulate and the mechanisms and instruments that we have to regulate the night. So based on these discussions, we can see that there's a need to broaden our views as researchers of nighttime, both culturally, geographically, but also conceptually. And this resonates to something that we discussed with Alessio Colulis, teaching fellow at the Bartlett Development Planning Unit at UCL. Since at least the 1990s, research into nighttime economies has primarily focused on post-industrial cities of the global north. You know, we can think about lots of cities in Europe like Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Berlin or Manchester in the UK or cities in the US such as Detroit and Chicago or cities in Canada and Australia, where there is a lot of literature about nighttime in cities such as Sydney and and Melbourne, for instance. And all these literature and all these studies were very important in highlighting key policy aspects in the field of town planning or gentrification or issues related to tourism or transport equity or safety, gender and identity. And more in general, I think, all these studies were important to highlight the role of the creative industries for local economic development. You know, while the focus on the global north was essential for the emergence of a nighttime economy and nighttime governance framework, I think that it is now very important to expand research into nighttime economies in the sphere of development studies and urban planning in cities of the global south. On the one hand, we have to probably start thinking more and more the night as one part of the broader business supply chain of the creative industries. We have to start looking at the night more broadly as part of of this bigger picture about the creative industries. And on the other hand, you know, the local governments, municipal governments really have to start recognizing the importance of the nighttime economy for the creative industries and for social innovation more more in general. And luckily, you know, many city governments have started to to, to do that. So we see, for instance, you know, nighttime mayors and nighttime commissions, you know, from Amsterdam, in Berlin, in London, proactively trying to support the sector of the creative production industries and to protect um, jobs. As Alessio was saying, there's a growing interest and a growing recognition by local governments of the need to place the night in urban agendas. And a clear sign of that is that today there's more than 50 cities around the world that have appointed or designated nightmares or advocates or created specialized offices to deal with managing the city at night. We will talk about this in more detail in an upcoming episode on nightmares. This is a clear sign of the growth of this emerging field we like to call nighttime governance, which is a subset of a broader field of night studies. 
And that reminds me of something that Will Straw, a professor of urban media studies at McGill University, spoke about when I spoke to him. I'll just preface this by saying, you know, I'm not a young man and I've never been more excited about <laughs> what I'm working on and, and and the people around me as now. And this is because of this thing called night studies that started, you know, in British sociologies of drinking, in French studies of time and geography is, is a, has blossomed into this very you know, kind of incoherent, unbordered, but very interesting field. I think for a long time, night studies, the questions that drove it were about what we can call the festive night, going out drinking. What does that mean? Should bars stay open? Subcultures at night and so on. Where I think it's moving is, you know, and it's in line with lots of other things in our society now, is towards taking up the question, not just of the festive night, but of the night of those who work, the night of those who have to sleep in shopping centers or in buses and so on. These are populations of the night and so on. So where I think it's going is towards a broader kind of consideration of all of the forms of justice that the night is involved, also all the very different forms of sociability, the forms of pleasure too, because the night will re- remains pleasurable. And I think that's where the new energies for night studies are going to come. We're still going to be studying clubbing and so on, but I think we're going to start studying night. I'm fascinated by what goes on in hospitals at night. Um, I'm fascinated by what some call polit- politics of sleep. Where do people sleep? What are our obligations as a society in terms of what we give people as the basic resources with which to sleep. And so that's, to me, exciting. A rich nightlife is one in which the night is stretched out in time. Maybe it goes you know, to mid-afternoon, maybe it goes to 6 a.m., but also dispersed in space so that instead of everybody flocking to a city center for a festival or some square where everything's happened, you wander, you meander, and there are little bits of things to be enjoyed. And that's what I think a reinvented night might be. When I was speaking to all these nighttime experts and asking them what advice would they give to an early career academic or anybody, really, anybody who's interested in the night. And there was a really recurring theme, and that is to go outside at night and be in that atmosphere, that space, and experience it, and really think about your relationship with the night and your experience of the night, and think about how there are so many different dimensions and so many different types of experiences of the night. There is not just one way of viewing the night and different regions, different genders, different cultural experiences. Think about how all of those different aspects of the night come together to form such a diverse field. So I think if there's any advice that all of the nighttime experts have to all of us interested in this part of our lives, it's to go out there and really examine the diversity that it brings. And I think that's what we'll start to do in the rest of this series is really understand those different relationships and those different aspects of the night that we don't usually think about but are incredibly important and bring a whole different perspective to what the night really is. So based on these conversations, we can see how the night has been embedded in the tradition of crime and fear. And we can see how there's a need, a growing need for more research and more data-driven approaches to understand the the night as a field of research and practice that goes beyond these perceptions and these stigmas. And this calls for schools of planning, schools of design, as well as other professions and other experts to get involved in this nascent field. 
Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and I can't wait to keep talking about it in episode two where we'll be discussing nightmares. Um, So thank you so much, Andrina, for joining us. Thank you so much, Shelby, and thanks to our listeners and have a good night. Thank you to Robert Shaw, Christelle Olukoy, Alessio Coliolis, and Will Straw, plus my wonderful co-host, Andrina Sejas. This episode was produced by Kate Murray, sound production by Beck Fari, and brought to you by the Connected Cities Lab. You can find more information about the work of our lab and the researchers in this podcast in our show notes. And you can join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag CitiesAfterDark. The Connected Cities podcast acknowledges the Indigenous peoples of the lands upon which we work and meet to create this podcast. For us at University of Melbourne, we pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Wherever in the world you are listening to this, we invite you to pause and consider the traditional owners of the land upon which you stand.